Welcome back to the 114th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories. Two of them are going to be talking about the downfall of college and what it may look like in the future in America. And then our last article is going to be talking about the support that Texas Governor Abbott is getting from some of the other Republican governors. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So as you could probably guess from the articles that we'll be covering first, colleges are down bad. With the population of college-age students, people that are just getting out of high school, and ready to take on the world and learn new things and learn about Aristotle in a more in-depth way, go to a liberal arts college and get a wide breadth of information and different studies, well, they're, they're shrinking, slowly but surely. And the institutions, you know, they've become the focus of politics within the last few years. And obviously they have been for a long time, but political pr- pressures are becoming a lot stronger. And the future is not looking bright. So do you still see the service that these colleges offer as valuable? Do you see the education that they're giving as important? And is there an argument in your mind that maybe we should have more specialized colleges moving forward as we move into an ever more specialized economy? There are lots of aspects to this conversation. Basically, give me your opinions on colleges. I want to hear them, throw them down in the comment section. So let's jump to the first article. This one comes from Daily Beast. Ron DeSantis' war on colleges is bad for Florida business. So, of course, this does have a more political angle, and it's going to be talking about what Ron DeSantis is doing in Florida. And, of course, we will discuss that, and I'll give my opinion on that. But I want to talk more about the consequences of those actions rather than the political implications and how it's going to affect the college. That should be the main focus, or at least that will be the framing that I try to take throughout most of this article. Of course, I am a person that loves my tangents, so let's just jump right into this first quote and see where it takes us. Quote, when Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed a bill into law Monday banning the state's public colleges and universities from allocating funds to diversity, equity, and inclusion programs, he sent a resounding message to not just his constituents, but to the nation writ large. Put simply, DeSantis is focusing on culture wars that rally his base, a necessary move as he increasingly becomes more interested in running for president than serving as governor. Even if that hurts Florida's standing as a beacon of economic freedom and prosperity. Two things in which DeSantis takes pride. He and his army of advisors and right-wing media allies have spun the move as a way to stand against discrimination, twisting the narrative surrounding his anti-DEI push as one that's actually supporting diversity and equality by eliminating unfair concessions to those deemed undeserving, end quote. So what do we think that he is going for when he's saying that this is actually going to help make Florida and Florida colleges a more equal and diverse place? Well, we'll probably say that he's going with the 
classic conservative counter-argument to diversity, equity, inclusion, which is why aren't we having diversity of thought? Why aren't we holding different people's thought processes, worldviews up to one another and judging them based on their merits and making sure that everybody has the opportunity to say and believe what they want and have a society that actually debates those things rather than relegating one opinion to the sidelines saying, oh, well, no, 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 you're not a, you're not a this, you're not a that, you're not from this certain marginalized group, so your opinion, your worldview is obviously not as valid. And there is an argument to the DEI movement, or sorry, an argument against the DEI movement that this happens, that in order to encourage marginalized communities to speak their mind, tell their stories, and feel comfortable, that sometimes results in pushing the people that are seen as oppressors, which I think is an unfair label, but the people that are seen as oppressors off to the side saying, no, no, you can have an opinion, but that doesn't mean you can step in and you can tell us other people who have been marginalized and hurt by your community's actions what to do, how to think, and what's good for us, so on and so forth. So it relegates that side of the argument saying, yeah, yeah, have your opinion. We're not going to take it seriously. We're not going to include it in this discussion because you were historically an oppressor or your group got certain advantages in the past that our group didn't get. So we need to move forward and we need to now include our voices in the conversation. But really, more than just include them, we're going to prefer them. Because this is a little bit of the ideology that, okay, well, in order to get over what has happened in the past, in order to get past the years of not being able to talk, not being able to share their opinions, not being able to go to some of these colleges, well, now they're treated preferentially in order to balance that out. But then the question becomes, are you not just doing the same thing that was done to you, to the other group that you're now not including or not allowing to have a strong voice in the conversation? So you can see how this is not healthy for college campuses. This should be a place where you come in, no matter your background, no matter what happens has happened to your family, no matter whether you are from Sri Lanka, you're from Russia, whether you're from Papua New Guinea, or you're from America. It doesn't matter what your background is, and it doesn't matter what group you fall into, what small box we can pigeonhole you in. You need to be able to be a part of the conversation because the only way that ideas thrive, spread, and develop is through interacting with other ideas. That's the only way that we can... What? So I'll jump a little bit ahead so you can understand why I'm getting a little bit passionate here because the author is saying that, well... If we're not allowed to have diverse perspectives on campus, then we're going to have a brain drain. People are going to leave Florida, and there's not going to be as much innovation, which is going to hurt the economy. And this is true. But what I would argue is that in order for there to be a true innovation, a true combat of ideas and new thoughts coming out of these colleges, you actually have to include every single person not just the people that have been historically marginalized or the people that fit into a very specific substrata of the population that you think is important. Because when all of those ideas come together and battle it out and they come out of college, every student comes out of college a little bit more informed, a little bit different, 
that will be what allows them to innovate, to stay in Florida, to be the next entrepreneurs, to propose new legislation if they become a politician. These ideas that come out of college are supposed to guide us forward. And, you know, it maybe it's a big pipe dream. Maybe I'm being a little bit romantic about the what college is supposed to do. You're supposed to come out with new ideas. But even having old ideas presented to you in college and debated and looking at their merit will allow these students to go into the world and understand, okay, these old rules of business, they work great, but here's where they fail. And you kind of get that battle with lots of different perspectives in college. If you have one or two people in a classroom who are pushing the envelope and everybody else is sheep, that's good. Even if those, it doesn't matter what the origin or group identity of those two people are. They're pushing the envelope and they're forcing everybody else who just may want to follow along with the old way of doing things to see things in a different perspective. And it spurs a conversation. So we talked, or I use the term brain drain, and the author likes to touch on this a little bit. So we're going to jump to this quote. Quote, if colleges and universities are, as DeSantis describes them, hotbeds of student indoctrination rife with woke criteria and leftist academics, on what planet will said woke army stick around at institutions that no longer support diversity, equity, and inclusion? And who would be crazy enough to assume these bastions of liberal indoctrination will be okay with being told what criteria they can and cannot teach? The answer are easy, is easy. Very few. Certainly not enough to maintain the high bar of academic excellence attained at the school's booming institutes of higher education. Faculty members at Florida State University, one of the top schools in the state, have already announced departures, and others are rethinking their decision to teach in Florida, according to WUSF. So you can see that when you have a top-down mandate that dictates what can be taught at these schools, it does discourage a lot of teachers, and it makes them want to leave. And as the article goes on to say, it is even students who are saying, oh, no, no, I don't want to go to school in Florida now. There's no diversity, equity, and inclusion program there. And that's all very, very true. And there's a part to it that I agree with. I think that while some of DeSantis's acts are very good for a healthy culture, I also agree he can be a little bit heavy-handed, and he's using his powers in a smart way. I don't think there's any executive overreach, but it does make me step back a little bit because I am very hesitant towards authority and top-down implementation of your agenda. So if there was a way that on a cultural level, people who and students who could go to these universities and push for different programs to be installed or to limit the influence of DEI programs or to say, okay, well, we don't want this certain type of uh, material taught because we feel like it's discriminatory or it cuts against something, blah, blah, blah. But that would have to be a ground-up movement, one done by the students pushing back. And if they really don't have an interest in this woke stuff, then they need to push back and not just expect the governor to come in and mandate that the schools can't handle this. So I do have a hesitancy to let executive authority just outright handle these issues. But I think some of the conversation points are important ones, and 
the fact that they're happening at least starts the conversation. And I think that is important. But you are going to see some Florida people, whether that be teachers, whether that be students, leave the state because they're not seeing that there's this equality of ideas, this inherent equality of being a student when you go to these campuses. Some students are favored because of the group they fit into. Some other students are put down. And that has probably been causing conservative kids to not go to Florida schools. And now you might begin to see the opposite. Conservative kids will go on to these campuses. They'll be willing to go to Florida schools because they'll say, oh, now I can have my ideas. I can say them and I can have them debated in the open forum, the public forum of college or the classroom, and not have to worry about being reprimanded. And now you'll see people who want DEI programs probably going to different states like California. That is the beautiful thing about the free market of college. But it is one thing that we have to weigh. And to be honest, if we're going to have people leave a college, I would rather people leave the college that don't believe in diversity of thought and they believe more in the DEI programs than lose the people that believe in diversity of thought and are insistent on having programs that pigeonhole people into different identity groups. But that's just my opinion on that one. So, obviously, that's Florida. That talks about the woke DEI stuff. But is there an overall trend that's worse for colleges? I think you know the answer, and I have part of the answer here. And it's our next article. It comes from the Washington Post. What to know? Why America is losing its edge looking around college campuses. So, as I mentioned before, the age group that normally attends college, it is actually shrinking in the United States. Or, I should probably step back, natural-born Americans of that age, that population is shrinking. We've been seeing this trend for a little bit of time. I had conversations with some of my teachers and college administrators when I was in college that spoke about how things are going to get really tight the amount of people that are eligible to go to college is lowering, and also the amount of kids and students that want to go to college is lowering because a lot of different business leaders are saying, hey, a college degree is great. shows you're willing to be disciplined. It shows that you maybe if you applied yourself and you actually went through school and you had a rigorous program, that you were willing to put in the time to get a base of knowledge and then specialize in a certain field. But a lot of employers are saying, hey, that's great. But I want experience, especially in the digital age when anything you want to learn, you can learn online. They're saying, okay, show me that you know video editing. Show me that you know product design or you know how to get views on certain things. Show me your track record. And that is going to suffice rather than getting a special degree in media design or marketing or a videography degree, something to that effect. So. Let's start by going through some statistics that the article talks about. Quote, some 2.5 million fewer Americans are enrolled in college than in 2011, and the decline is accelerating. The college-going rate of high school graduates has dropped from 70% in 2016 to 62% in 2022. And if this trend continues, a group of young Americans will, for the first time in our history, enter the workforce less educated than the one before. As a university president, I worry not simply for the financial health of the institution I serve 
Rather, my fears are for our country's long-term economic competitiveness as we experience a widespread devaluing of education and the erosion of the education advantage that we've held in global affairs for the past 70 years. This is the most serious long-term national security challenge facing our country, end quote. And obviously there are two parts to this that I want to address. One, yes, he is, he is biased. This author is biased. Okay, he's the president of an institution of a university, so of course he's going to be concerned about this, and of course it may seem worse to him, but that doesn't mean that what he's saying is not necessarily true. The one thing I do I want to push back on just a little bit is that the economic competitiveness is going to be harmed. There, there's two, there's another two parts. I know, wow, two parts to everything, but there's two parts to this one as well. So moving into a high-tech economy moving forward across the entire world, to some degree, this will be true. As we have less college-educated people, we'll have less of the bleeding-edge engineers, less of the bleeding-edge biologists, neurochemists, things of this nature, and we'll be losing out on that front, and that will hurt us economically, especially, like I said, we're going into a lot of specialized economies moving forward across the world. But also, I want to harken back to the 40s, the 50s, the 60s. A lot of our growth during that time, when we were still an industrial or at least a manufacturing-based country, a lot of people didn't have college educations. So I'm not saying that people who don't go to college nowadays are instantly going into factories and they're boosting the economy through manufacturing and things like that. But if we were to bring manufacturing back to the United States, having a certain segment of the population that is not college educated, that may not necessarily think, okay, yeah, I need that extra $5 an hour because I spent four years getting this degree, who are willing to possibly take lower wages because they're skilled workers, but they understand well, yeah, I, any, almost anybody could replace me, but that's okay by me. I didn't go to college for a reason. I just wanted to get out there and work and make money. If we have that population steadily growing and starting to bring manufacturing back to the United States for some of these high-tech industries, I think that could also spur economic growth. So I don't think it's as simple as saying, oh, people aren't going to college anymore. We're going to be less competitive. There are multiple ways to be competitive. I mean, to be honest... If we look at China, a lot of their population is not, or older population is not college educated. Now, of course, they did push for a lot of their people to be college educated, and that's been a big move. But just because we have a rise in the net income of the average American family, or we have a rise in the average salary of a person across the United States. It doesn't necessarily mean that we're thriving more economically. Of course, it does appear that way, and we have a higher standard of living. But if we also have a robust manufacturing, let's say, industry or sector of the economy that can be supplied by people who don't want to go to college. I'm not saying, oh, we need to permanently say some people can't go to college. They don't deserve it. No, my statement is, if they don't want to go to college anyway, and they want to work in these harder jobs, they want to be a little bit more specialized, and they want to contribute to the economy in a meaningful way, and they want to work in these factories, hey, don't discourage them. Don't say, hey, they should be going to college. It's going to be terrible if they don't go to college. Don't do that. 
If they want to do that, they can contribute to the GDP. They can contribute to the increased economic power of the United States in a different way. Just because they're not going into the financial sector, which is what a lot of people in the 60s and 70s did in Britain as they started to lose their edge on the world stage. They went into more specialized financial jobs. That's why London got absolutely huge. And it kind of shows a decay of a country, in my opinion. It's a sign. I'm not saying it's the absolute end all. But if you're just going to industries that move money around rather than industries that create something, that build something, it shows a little bit of decay. And while it still may provide economic value, I think that there's a little bit more value. And this is a personal description or a personal belief. It's not necessarily borne out by economics. I haven't seen models that say this. But I think there's a little bit more value to industries that create and build products and then the jobs that just move money around. I think a lot of people feel that way, but you know that's not necessarily where our economy is going. You know, there's a lot of value to construction, building new things, building infrastructure, roads, different types of transportation, like new railroads, high-speed trains. And I think that's a little bit more valuable and will provide a little bit more of a benefit to the average American than... Oh, well, hold on. Yeah, I'll make a 401k retirement plan for you. I'll make sure that you have a Roth IRA stocked away, and we'll just take your money and then move it to one of the big investment firms. Don't get me wrong. That is valuable. But I would say, or I would feel, that a lot of these jobs that actually build something, that is more valuable. So why or what would the solution be? What is the solution this author proposes? Quote, universities also need to retire the unhelpful debate over what's more important, a broad education or specific skills. Some within academia hear the words career readiness as a moral threat to a liberal arts education. The reality is that though our students absolutely need a broad base of knowledge to navigate the complexity of today's world, they also need the tangible skills to be job ready on graduation day. Doing both requires universities to work more closely with employers to adapt programs to meet emerging needs, as well as making educational programs more accessible to people at all stages of their career, end quote. So you can see what he's saying here. He's saying that, hey, one, we need to make sure that we are catering to some of these more specialized jobs and that we interact with these companies and build out these programs and kind of fast track students going in to different industries. And then the second part is we need to make sure that if you're in your 30s and you want to come back to college and you've been working hard, you went straight into the workforce, but now you need that degree to be promoted or to move up in the world, then you can come back to college, which is an interesting tactic. I mean, there's value to it. Of course, college should be for anybody at any time, but also it is broadening the horizons of who can who and does attend college. And it's saying, okay, well, it's no longer for those 18 to 24-year-olds. And yes, I say 24-year-olds for like the fifth or sixth years. Uh, It's actually for everybody. And that's broadening their base and actually trying to include a larger part of the population so they can get more money from them. I'm not trying to be harsh. I'm just trying to be honest. That is part of the equation. But also, I do believe this guy actually believes that it is good to bring in people who have gone through their career or looking for a promotion and they want a different type or they want an education and an official degree from a university. 
But I think it's an interesting, interesting solution. And it's not one that covers every single aspect of what needs to be done. But it is one that says, hey, okay, we can't be afraid of specializing. And we need to acknowledge that the broad base is important. But a lot of kids, they want that specialized. They want that training in that certain area. When they can go on YouTube and they can learn how to edit from two or three videos and then practice, practice, practice. We need to compete with that. We need to offer specialized skills. We need to offer those courses in a more in-depth way and make it more valuable for the amount of money that you're paying to come and get our education and learn these specialized skills than it would be to just stay at home, work your butt off, and practice in your free time on these skills. So we'll see how that works out. We'll see how it plays out. I think that to some degree, this this president really does overvalue or overestimate what college brings to people's lives. But as a person who went to college, I think there's still a lot of value to the on-campus experience. It's a socializing mechanism. And as a person who wasn't very well socialized before college, and honestly, I'm probably not perfectly socialized coming out of college, but there was something very nice about that. And also interacting with people that are a lot wiser than you, that have a breadth of knowledge to pass on to you. That is another important aspect of college beyond just the education itself. So I think colleges are still important. Are they as important as they were in the past? Maybe not as much, but we'll see, like I said, how this will play out. So let's jump to our last article. This one comes from Just the News. 24 Republican governors commit to help Texas defend its border. So obviously, you've probably seen some of the clips that have come across, maybe a TikTok video, maybe a YouTube video. If you're one of the older constituents in my audience, you've probably seen it on the traditional media, the news of the crisis or the huge flood of immigrants coming in at the southern border with the end of Title 42. And a lot of Republicans have said, okay, we need to deal with this. And they haven't necessarily been able to put forward legislation on the federal level and get anything done comprehensively. So now you're starting to see the governors, the state governors of our state come together and say, okay, well, hey, if the federal government won't solve this, we're going to step up and do it. Quote, 24 Republican governors have responded to Texas Governor Greg Abbott's call for help to secure its border with Mexico. Quote, the federal government's response handing handling the expiration of Title 42 has represented a complete failure of the Biden administration, end quote, the governor said in a joint statement, referring to the end of the public health authority. Title 42, which expired midnight on 11th, the 11th of May, Title 42 allowed for quick expulsion of foreign nationals who'd entered the United States illegally during COVID-19 pandemic. With its end, an estimated 150,000 foreign nationals from all over the world are waiting in Mexico to illegally enter the U.S. at any moment, border officials say, end quote. And this is just, this is just a travesty. 150,000 people. How are we going to handle all of those people? I don't know. I, I know it's a talking point from both sides. Oh, how are we going to handle it? And no one ever really seems to have a clear answer, or if they do, it's something that ha- the other half of the nation isn't going to like. The Democrats say, okay, we're going to increase our processing. We're going to give out phones so that we can contact them, make sure that they get to their court dates, things like this. And Republicans are saying, we need to up our expulsion rates. We need to make sure that we process 
them so we have their fingerprints if they try to enter again, or we have at least some identification that they tried to get in this first time, and then we, boom, shuttle them back to Mexico or somewhere else across the border. So there are two different, very different approaches. But there is an approach that was not necessarily loved by the Republicans that came from the Biden administration, who does have the authority and could, in theory, sign an executive order mandating different policies to limit the amount of people that are allowed into the United States. But what they did was not necessarily loved. Quote, the Biden administration recently sent 1,500 military personnel to the border, and the U.S. Department of Homeland Security sent several thousand federal employees to help bolster Border Patrol agents. So that sounds great, right? Right? Isn't that amazing? We're getting more people there at the border. They're going to be able to help process these people and get them out. Well, it's actually a little bit different. Quote, Border Patrol agents expedite processing of foreign nationals into the U.S., not to block their entry, administration officials have explained. While doing so, the president and DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas continue to argue the border is closed. Previously, in September 2021, 26 Republican governors, led by Abbott and former, former Arizona Governor Doug Ducey, sent a letter to Biden requesting a meeting to discuss the border crisis. They say Biden never replied. One month later, in October 2021, Republican governors then released 10 policy solutions for the president to adopt to immediately secure the border, which he also ignored, end quote. So you see that the federal government is not stepping up here. They're not doing anything. So under a emergency management assistance compact, the Republican governors, the 24 that are around the United States, are stepping up and saying, okay, Abbott, you need our help. You know, Doug Ducey, he's gone in Arizona, so we can't help him anymore. But if you're calling for our help, we're going to step up. We're going to help you. We're going to send you, I believe it's National Guard agents, and they are going to help you secure your border. And this is what happens, and let's be clear, I think it's a beautiful thing that we have a federalist system that allows for states to help one another without having to worry about or without having to go to the federal government and say, oh, is it okay if we send our Florida National Guard to, to Texas? Is that okay, President Biden? We have a system where the states can cooperate. They don't have to just bend to the federal government's knee. And I think there is something beautiful about that. If the federal government's not going to step up and address this, the states have the sovereignty, they have the authority to do it themselves. And this is speaking about the... Honestly, I wish more Democrats who saw the effects of the border crisis would do this as well. They would probably get politically lambasted. But if they genuinely believed in their hearts that there is a crisis going on in Texas, I would hope that they are sending aid to Texas as well, or other states like Arizona, New Mexico, who might have Democratic governors. And they would say to them, okay, we agree with you, disagree with you on some sort of politics here, but we understand that this is a crisis and we're going to help you out throughout this time when you really need people to be sending assistance. I think that would be even more beautiful. But the 24 governors that are stepping up, it says something beautiful about our nation, that we are not just solemn states underneath one federal government, and we are not necessarily all cooperating. We all don't all have a connected, what's the word I would be looking for here, that 
our interests are not necessarily separate. We have interests that align. If these people come across Texas, their border, they might end up in Georgia. They might end up in Florida. They might end up in New York. They could end up in Montana. So we all have an interest to help one another. And we don't necessarily have to go through the federal government to help one another. I think that's something beautiful about our system. And it shows me that there still is hope, that there are still, there's still sovereignty in these states, and they can exert their will devoid of what the federal government wants. And there's something nice about that. All right, let's jump to our daily delight. This one comes from Adventure. What is a pika? Meet the adorable gatekeeper of the high country. So, have you ever heard of a, of a pika before? Because until this article, I, I was in the dark. I had no idea. Quote, pikas are a cute and cuddly presence in Northern America's alpine areas, but they're also some of the toughest beasts on the mountain. End quote. But if you're on the East Coast, like me, you're probably not going to run into any of these little guys. Quote, there are only two species of pika in North America, with the remaining 27 species found in Central Asia. American pikas tend to reside in mountains, high-altitude areas in the Rocky Mountains and further west. They are rock dwellers, living in dens and spaces with piles of talus, end quote. And if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos of these little guys, they make a really interesting chirping or loud pitch sound to warn their neighbors that people are around. If you want to see any of those cute photos or videos, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button where you can find this article and all of today's articles, as well as down there in the description, you'll find the link to the Spotify podcast, Pocket Cast, Google Podcast, Podvine, and the Twitter handle at your daily flip where I post the link to the YouTube videos directly on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So you can just go there on Twitter, click those links rather than having to search through YouTube to find them. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.